Welcome to the Wizards of Dabs podcast, where we interview the creators of various decentralized applications in the Web3 ecosystem. We learn about how they are built and the insights that come from shipping. And we're your co-hosts. I'm Peter. And I'm Bethany. Thanks for tuning in. We are sitting down with Sasha from Buns today. Buns is a mobile app that allows people to sell and exchange goods and services in a local peer-to-peer manner. They first began as a bartering economy where users could only trade goods and services, but now they've transitioned into a currency-based token economy using their Bits token. They've been heavily experimenting with various ethical user data business models and are looking to enable a product ecosystem where everyone's incentives are aligned. It's been really fun chatting to Sasha this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in. We are sitting down with Sasha from Buns today. Uh, welcome to Wizards of Dabs, Sasha. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. How are you? I'm great. Yeah, I'm good. I'm just busy, but good. Happy. Today, we kind of like love to dive into, you know, how Buns was created and, you know, where it's heading because you guys have been doing lots of really interesting experiments, you know, playing with RevShare advertising models on top of your app and more. Yeah, I'd love to learn about how you got started with Buns, how that project began. Sure. Yeah. So originally Buns was called Bums, B-U-M-S, Trading Zone. Uh, because everyone was kind of like bumming things off of each other. And it started as a Facebook group. Uh, It was founded by someone named Emily Bits. She's an advisor to the company still, but Emily founded the first Facebook group. Uh, And I met Emily through a common friend of ours uh, because I was building a bartering economy app. And they're like, well, you know, she's got this community that's kind of really cool. And you've got this application that's really cool. You guys should meet and figure out how to work together. So together, we kind of agreed on two core principles and that allowed us to co-found the app together. Uh, The core core principles we agreed on were one, that cash would never be allowed in the zone. So we wouldn't like use fiat currency, you know, anywhere in the immediate future to interact or transact on the application. Um, and secondly, that if uh, we built this in, this kind of application into a profitable company of any kind, then that the community would always come first. And that's kind of how we got led to the idea that as we look at networks like Facebook or Google or where your data and attention are the kind of monetized asset, you know, as we approached our, yeah, well, maybe we'll go into that bit, bit, bit deeper later. But the, the idea there was that we, we founded this application together and it really quickly grew uh, into quite a large community. So now there's over 315,000 people, 320,000 people on the application. In 2018, so last year, people did over 1 million bartering transactions. And then, then we re- introduced the currency bits because there's a classical economics issue related to bartering economies that prevented bartering economies from being the monetary system today. Um, and those issues are divisibility of goods, meaning I can't cut a cow in half because the other cow, half of the cow, if I don't take it, will go bad. Double coincidence of wants, meaning you have what I want and I have what you want. And in, in 2018, we saw that particular criteria really crest, like the transactions grew really quickly and then leveled off a bit and they were leveling off because people stopped having what the other person wanted. Um, so at that point, you kind of have to solve those classical economics issues of bartering and like the, there are more to them. There's like the medium of exchange problem, like we used to use seashells. And so in building a bartering economy, essentially what we ended up doing is creating the right environmental conditions to birth a currency. And that's kind of how bits came about. What year did you start the Facebook group and then migrate to the app? 
Emily started the Facebook group. Emily started the Facebook group in 2016. Uh, and in 2017, I believe we went to the app. And then 2018 was when you saw the massive growth. Uh, 2018 is when we saw the bartering kind of like we hit like, you know, over 2 million items in the marketplace that year, uh, about a million transactions completed. It was quite active. Like we, we activated different cities. So it's very popular in Toronto, Ottawa, Vancouver, Hamilton, Montreal. And so I think that kind of that growth was good, but then that growth ends up depleting the ability to like, it's just simply mathematics. It's like you, you or statistics almost It's like you hit a certain point where the probability of other people having what you want is depleted as a result of those items being removed from the economy. So that's kind of when you start to see this leveling off of transaction velocity and you have a choice. You either allow it to remain forever just a partner economy and likely it will slowly die off as a result of people not being able to get transactions completed, or you introduce a medium of exchange. And that's what we did with our currency bits. So uh, to give you some context of how Bits have performed in the last 12 months, we've been in market with Bits for 12 months. People have done over 3.5 million transactions with it. And these are not you know, exchange volumes. These are not, there's no way to prop up the volumes. These are not like trading volumes on secondary exchanges. These are literally people interacting and transacting with each other. So there's over, I think it's like 85,000 wallets now that hold the currency on the application. Um, and as we built it, we did a couple of really odd things that like from a thought experiment perspective are really kind of worth going into. You can deep dive into each one, but uh, the currency was never listed on a secondary exchange, not yet. It will be shortly. But uh, the reason for doing that was because we wanted people to have to earn the currency to kind of begin their relationship with the community. And that way, you're almost having to contribute to the community to be able to participate in the community. And so people would earn, originally people earned bits for growing the community, posting something that was really popular that everyone was engaging with. You could trade something that you didn't use anymore and get the currency from somebody else. And, you know, activating your wallet as like a, a starting phase had a, a, an activation bonus. So there's a bunch of different ways for contributing to the community that you can earn bits. And then the daily airdrop question. So on a daily basis at, you know, 3 p.m., depending on where you live, uh, at 3 p.m. every day, we ask a question. And if you respond to that question, you're giving up data. And in giving up data, we are able to pay you for that data. And we use that data to inform how brands can later interact with you. Um, so the same way Facebook takes your data and monetizes it, well, not in the same way, I should be really careful there, very different, but Facebook doesn't give you any choice. You, you, you have no choice in opting in or out. You have, on Buns, you, you can you know, decide you want to participate and click on the daily airdrop. Maybe the question is, let's say, sponsored by a computer company. Um, they can ask you a question and they can use that question and that information later to inform their decision making on how they should interact with you later on the application. So essentially consensual data for currency. And, and when the business or brand pays buns, 60% of that money goes into a treasury. So let's say it's $10,000, they pay buns. $6,000 goes into a treasury and 600,000 bits go into circulation as a result of people interacting with that brand's advertisement. So as we kind of did this, essentially what we did was we were looking at how we could make data, how we could, one, we, we believe that the fundamentals of data are off. One, it's mispriced. Two, the rightful owners of data are not platforms or people. Um, like at some point, we've seen somehow forgot that we were the rightful owners of data um, as a result of the social contract with platforms saying, oh, well, you get to use it for free and in return, I get to use your data. That's very, you know, very much broken. And so these are kind of some of the things we, we, that led us to this point. So we, we all of a sudden have this data economy, let's call it, whereby your contribution, attention, and, and data would earn you this currency that's backed by the demand for data. 
because on an annual basis, about $325 billion is spent on digital advertising. So if we take this, like that's essentially that's the currency of the internet, let's call it, this data and attention. So if we have this $325 billion pool of annual reoccurring revenue, how do we democratize that and have everyone participate? And for us, Bits acts as a secure storage and transmission vehicle for that value for people to be able to participate at an individual level rather than it just be owned by platforms. And then the next piece to that is, okay, well then how do you, if people all of a sudden are getting paid in what we like to call data-backed money, so money backed by the demand for data, we'll call it data-backed money. If people are paying in data-backed money or data each other, like how do we shorten the realization of value, like the value loop? How do we take the realization that you can earn this now and you can use it? And what's going to be exciting for people? And so what we decided to do was to onboard over 200 shops that accept our currency. They're all across Canada right now. They're going to be across the United States next and Tokyo. But the way it works is, uh, so again, let's come back to the distribution model and then we can go to the redemption model. So a brand comes and pays bonds $10,000 to interact with the customers. Customers choose to interact. So $6,000 gets deposited into the treasury of the 10,000. 600,000 bits are released into circulation. They're backed. The community receives this currency for interacting with this brand, be it for attention, be it for data or whatever it may be. Now, they can spend it peer-to-peer. So people, there's a lot of transactions that happen on the application of people wanting to get rid of something and getting bits or paying someone else in bits. But you also have the ability to walk into these shops and pay the shop in bits. So what that is, is because when a person sends bits from one person to another on the application on the Buns app, there is no redemption against treasury. Uh, the redemption against treasury occurs when a person takes the bits from the application and spends them at a retail location because that retailer has to replenish their, their goods. Um, and we very much view these local businesses as part of our community. No one wants to live in a city where there are no kind of interesting, cool businesses and creative places that are making awesome stuff. So, so these businesses then have the ability to accept bits and they can redeem them against treasury for dollars. And uh, in the last 12 months since doing this and launching the currency and enabling businesses to accept the currency, which we did simultaneously, not easy to do, don't recommend it. Uh, in, in the last 12 months, people have earned and spent at local retailers over a million dollars. So, you know, I think in some of the merchants are, are some of the businesses that are accepting the currency are doing over 30% of their monthly transactions now in our currency, the coffee shops. So coffee obviously is a lower, like remember I was saying earlier about you want to shorten the value loop. Uh, you know, there's going to be expensive items on these different shops, but really what you're looking to do is to get like, have someone answer a question and then have them receive bits, which is the value derived from their data and immediately allow them and empower them to buy something with it. So coffee, when they, when they go from answering a question to getting a coffee and drinking it, it's like, holy shit, my data is worth something. That sounds really cool. Yeah. And so uh, people earned a million dollars uh, and spent it at local retail businesses. And the interesting thing for businesses is that this is not like share of customer wallet, right? Like this is not, this is not money that the customer has earned at their job. It's not even an asset type that they otherwise would have had. So like the only way to accept data as payment currently is, is buns. And as far as I'm aware. And so it, it's a really interesting thing because it's almost like if you don't accept, like, you know, in the last year, a million dollars was spent at over 200, 250 retail locations. So if you don't accept bits, you can't participate in the, the sales that we're making to get these brands in. And you can't capture as a retailer part of that new business. But if you do accept it, then you can, you can capture it. Yeah. This is like at a basic level, right? Yeah. So users, right, they complete daily surveys to allow brands to learn more about how they can engage with them. Yeah, and those brands can then use the survey data to inform their advertisement on the application. So we just recently launched ads. So let's say a good example is like, let's use this like Microsoft, okay? 
So Microsoft asked the question, which is your favorite suite of tools from Microsoft? And you say Excel and I say Word. They want to push the Microsoft Surface Pro. So what ends up happening is you see an ad for the Microsoft Surface Pro and it's like, Peter, you love Excel. Excel runs amazingly on the Surface Pro. Sasha, you love Word. Word runs amazingly well on the Surface Pro. So we're contextualizing that advertisement to those people. You'll have a better return on investment, essentially, is the theory there. When did you start experimenting with user surveys on Bunts.com? I mean, the mobile platform itself. I think it was like two weeks after we launched the currency. We announced the currency. Uh, and then two weeks later, we were turning on our first mechanism to distribute the, the currency. Um, you need a distribution mechanism. Distribution mechanisms currently are like, oh, your buying power can allow you to buy more of Bitcoin or ETH or whatever. So that was our distribution mechanism at the outset. Now there's a number of them, but yeah, it's one of them. Uh, was it a deliberate move or was it a more of ex an experimental bet to un to understand more about how you can distribute the bits tokens? This has all been very intentional. A lot of people make the assumption that like we're just like figuring it out and floundering through it. Absolutely not. Like going back to the origin story, Emily and I shook hands and agreed that we would make sure that if the company was going to be profitable, that the community would benefit first. And we needed a secure transmission and storage vehicle for value if we were going to do that. And crypto is the perfect way to do that. It offers that storage and transmission vehicle. And then the question becomes is why would you, we didn't want them to buy it because we had the responsibility of distributing the value resulting from the platform to them, not the other way around. And so crypto was a very intentional choice. The survey component was a very intentional choice because we realized that, so you built some secure storage and transmission vehicle. Then you have to ask yourself, okay, what's the, what's the economy of the internet today? And the answer is data and attention because it's the largest volume throughput on the internet. Um, so 325 billion annually reoccurring. Then it's like, okay, well, then how do you package data, the value derived from data into a currency? And then how do you make sure it's circulated based on engagement and you know, interaction with it? So these were very intentional decisions and moves. And, and really what we're doing is we're saying, hey, the social contract around your, so your social networks using your data are fundamentally flawed. And why don't we create an alternative? Uh, because there isn't one. Like where do you go as a brand or a business if you want to interact with customers, but compensate them for that? What was your first customer? Uh, the first three customers that trialed it were Boozer, Coho, Wealthsimple, and Lyft are four of them there. So really amazing brands. Like, And the beauty, beautiful part is that like they've now started to come back to do more work together, which is really cool, some of them. You mentioned you and Emily agreed that you would never use fiat currency within the community. So back when you started, did you know that you wanted to go the crypto route? Because you said it's definitely a good match, but was that idea there? Yeah, so not a whole lot, right? Winding back here, like there was a lot of hoopla ha at the time. It was just like everyone was like doing huge token sales. Like we never did a token sale. It was intentional. We didn't want to take people's money because this is such a complex, difficult problem that taking people's money will actually cause pressure for us to like do things that we weren't ready to do. But having said that, I spent 11 years at the intersection of technology and finance working for the largest bank in North America for like senior vice presidents of different divisions in the stock trading division, in the anti-money laundering, anti-terrorist financing division, in the real estate secure lending division, uh, in their digital innovation groups. So like I, I had a lot of opportunity to play with this technology before everyone was like, oh my God, Bitcoin, right? So Right. Yeah. So you were aware of crypto before. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, we saw the opportunity for sure. It was like, okay, this is going to go mainstream. We knew it was coming. We weren't sure when. But even the way we did it is yeah. like super different than other applications. You started with the community and built the community and forced them to interact on the platform and then introduce the token mechanics, which is which seems to be quite smart. Yeah. Just one thing I'd say about that is we didn't force anyone to do anything. 
Um, the existing community on Facebook, they're still there. If they want to remain on Facebook, that's their discretionary choice. My job is to point out to them that they can do what they're doing on Facebook and not get paid, right. or they can do what they're doing on Buns and get paid. So it's like, it's the same kind of, if all platforms are made equal, where are you going to go? The place where that doesn't pay you or the place that pays you? You're going to go to the place that pays you. So that's really where the kind of overarching strategy to kind of go full attack mode on Facebook comes from. But yeah, so I would say what you're saying is accurate, that we took a very different approach whereby the vast majority of the projects in this space are infrastructure first. Uh, We believe that there are a lot of really smart people at like Cosmos, you know, Ethereum, like all these different you know, groups like, you know, our friends at Chainsafe. So all those folks, like they're doing an amazing job building infrastructure and even Polkadot, right? Like the Web3 Foundation, all these folks doing amazing work to build this this infrastructure that's, you know, when we're rooting for them to achieve scalability, because it's almost like you bring the chips and I'll bring the dip. Like we're building the demand and the usability and utility of this currency that's going to essentially be the first thing that is at scale running on this infrastructure, in my opinion, that's how we see it. And, and the reason that is, is because, if data, again, I'm going to come back to data. If data is the currency of the internet and all of a sudden it's being democratized and everyone's participating with it. And like the way we've designed it right now is such that the application is centralized, the infrastructure is decentralized on the Ethereum side. So you're able to send bits from funds, the application to Ethereum mainnet through a bridge we built. Or we built that with chains. So what the importance of that is, is that everyone can participate in the data economy. It's not prohibitive to adoption based on technical knowledge. Like right now, crypto is still very early and the barrier to entry for participation is super high for people who are not technical. And so if you're on the Buns app and you just wanted to like trade with people or like, you know, interact with people and like get some bits, it shouldn't be, this is again, very, this might be controversial for this particular conversation, but I'll say it anyways. It's like ownership of keys is a responsibility and it's an obligation that should not be forced on anybody. It should be a choice. And that way, everyone has the option to participate in the data economy. And if they choose that they want that responsibility because they've derived so much value from that economy, then we're welcome, welcome them to take their bits to Ethereum mainnet and hold them in their own possession. Until that point where the technology is there, we want to make sure everyone can participate in the data economy. And that's why we took this approach of centralized application, decentralized infrastructure, and a bridge between them. Yeah, previously, we, we like the first time we chatted, right? We were talking about onboarding and centralized onboarding. And you mentioned how you received some flack a while back for abstracting away the key management, right? And it's really interesting in how like even like six months ago, right? Within the Ethereum community, we saw a lot more uh, centralized onboarding solutions in the community get flack as they entered the space. Um, however, within the last few months, we've been seeing everyone implement them. So things actually move really quickly and so does sentiment, right? To the spear. Yeah. I mean, like before it was very against the grain the last year of what we've done. But like, I would like to believe that we set the foundation forged forward to show and demonstrate that, like find me another application that has over 300,000 users using it for, for consumer behaviors on a daily basis. Like it's, it's pretty amazing. So I think I think the story there is like, No one wants to build technology that ends up having no utility to everyone. Um, And I look at like blockchain infrastructure, like true blockchain infrastructure plays. And I don't believe the FAT protocol thesis necessarily. But what I do believe is that I, I believe that like there are people that are building and harvesting demand to be able to run on these infrastructures. And then there are people who are building these infrastructures. And the interesting part of with open source is that like the technical nature of things is like, 
you know, you have the ability to modify these environments that have been created and fork them. And so if I create this thing that has a huge amount of demand and you've created this infrastructure and I have the ability to fork that infrastructure, I can either choose to work with you as a partner and trust that your roadmap is going to align to my roadmap, or I can just fork your infrastructure and start a new roadmap. So I have always taken the approach of like, if this is going to make a real difference in the world, it has to be usable. My position is the most valuable currency is the one that everyone can use. And the easiest way to make a currency that everyone can use is to, one, make sure that they don't even have to buy it because their asset is being monetized anyway. Let's just give them what is rightfully theirs, their value derived from their data. And secondly, um, how do we make it, you give it you true utility, both at an application layer, but also as a purchasing power. So that means you have to have merchant capabilities with it to be able to spend it at local retailers and stuff. And the reason we don't take the approach of doing that with like gift cards is because it's almost like you're taking this money from a centralized or that other guys go to a centralized monopoly and you're giving it to people. And then it's like, if you allow them to buy Amazon gift cards or something, you're literally just piping it right back into like Amazon or a centralized entity. So that's why we make it spendable where you are. So we only work with local merchants in uh, cities that where we exist. And the reason is just because our mission fundamentally at a higher level outside of what like our, we're doing from a strategic roadmap perspective, our mission is really how do we create an economic system that's sustainable environmentally, economically, and socially? And what that means is like socially means, you know, how do we connect people more meaningful at a local level and bring them together to interact in ways that are beneficial to everyone in that community? Economically, how do we ensure that the proportional usage based on geography is benefiting from usage? So let's say like, imagine for a second, 20% of the total usage, let's say there's $100 million that's generated and 10% of it is in Toronto. Toronto would literally be getting $10 million in some abstracted way through this currency. So like, how do we, how do we ensure that, that we create a more sustainable future? And most importantly, environmentally, if we're buying everything from like international shipping depots all over the world, but the problem is, is that like you have no alternative to that as well. The, the best way to achieve an alternative to let's say an example Amazon is actually to take a whole bunch of local inventory that's not online, bring it online and make it easier to interact with than Amazon. So that way you can get things actually cheaper and faster because they already exist locally. And so things like this are, are what are motivating what we're doing is because we know that the system is fundamentally broken and we need to find an alternative and we need to do it urgently because a lot of people are having a very difficult time economically and socially and environmentally, the planet's having a hard time. So you've been doing some work around radical exchange. Uh, you were at the conference recently and I believe you also presented that, right? So like what do you have in the works essentially for various concepts described around those, those concepts in uh, Glenn's book? Yeah, so we've been playing with variations on quadratic voting. Uh, so essentially, you know, I like, I like you guys. I'm going to give you guys the scoop, okay? Okay, so we're launching this thing called Zones, Social Communities on the app. I'm going to go through the basic problem, and then I'm going to come back and circle back to how this relates to QV. The basic problem it solves is right now, if you're, if you're an administrator on any social network, the problem with that social network or being an admin on that social network is you can't monetize the work you're putting in. And so like the reason is, is if you, if you post, let's say that you're on a Facebook group and you have a header, if you take that header and you replace it with an advertisement, that's Facebook's business. And so Facebook will shut you down for doing that. Because Facebook's in the business of advertising, you're not allowed to do that, even though you grew the community to 200,000 people. Secondly, is you can't charge a fee for managing and growing this community. And any value derived from that community's data, which specifically community data is worth a lot, because like when you have a whole bunch of car collectors or car people coming together, uh, you know they spend a lot of money on their hobby. 
their ticket price of parts that they buy are very high. So people will pay a lot to reach them and they're collected. They're there together and they're, they're able to create consensus around things that they like and that they don't like. So there's no way to monetize the growth or maintenance of a, a social community. So Buns is launching social communities where you actually have the ability to get compensated for two things. One, the aggregate value of the community's attention uh, you share in that revenue with the community as the administrator. And secondly, is you actually have an explicit ability to charge a fee in bits to other participants on a monthly basis. Now, this is where it gets interesting. We're going to get back to the QV stuff. And this is kind of why I think Glenn and I have had you know a lot of really cool times talking about stuff and, and some of the other folks at Radical Change who, who are, they're a brilliant organization, by the way. You know, everyone's just iterating on each other's ideas and it's just really exciting. So in the, in the case of this community, so let's say, let's say, Bethany, you're the head admin, you're the administrator of the zone, and Peter and I are members of your zone. Let's say uh, we're in the Berlin cooking group. You charge a monthly bits fee for a membership of 100 bits. And let's say on a monthly basis between our community, there's $1,000 is earned on a monthly basis from digital advertising in our group because people love targeting the Berlin food club. So now let's talk about the fee first. So of the monthly membership fee that we pay to you, of the 100 bits that both Peter and I pay to you, let's say 20 bits goes to you and 80 bits goes to something called the commons. So for every member, you're earning 20 bits and 80 bits is going to the commons, or maybe we'll call it 50-50. That's simpler. So you have 50 bits to you, 50 bits is to the commons. The commons is a collective pool of funds that we as a social community decide how to use. So it's, it's money that's designed to bring people together. Now, it gets even more interesting. In addition to that 50 bits that from my membership fee that you've put into your personal wallet, so you're compensated, and secondly, into the wallet of the commons, the social group's wallet, let's say $1,000 is earned in digital advertising on our social group this month because there's so many people and it's grown and everyone's seeing all these ads. So out of that, let's say you earn 200 bits of the 1,000 for being the administrator and the person who grew this social group, and the 800 bits goes into the commons. So as the community grows, this pool is growing. You're being compensated, so you have an, an economic incentive to maintain the group and continue ownership of the group. Now, this is where it gets weird and interesting. So let's say Peter thinks it's a really great idea to create a t-shirt for the Berlin Food Club. And he creates this awesome design and he posts it up there and says, hey guys, I want to use half a million bits from the commons to make t-shirts for everyone in the group. And at this point, there's like a thousand people in the group. Everyone thinks it's an amazing idea. So the way it works is people start voting for that yes or no, okay? And you can cast votes that got quadratically more expensive. So one vote is yeah. one bit, two votes is four bits, three votes is nine bits, and so on and so forth. Now, 100 people vote yes, okay? So 100 people spent one bit. It doesn't go into the commons. It just gets held into a side bucket, let's call it, like a side pot. I happen to be very wealthy in bits, I am totally against these shirts and I'm in this, this group as well. So I say no. So 100 people say yes. I say no 105 times. So it costs me 11,025 bits to say no that many times. Okay. Now, 100 people, so 11,025 plus 100 bits, because 100 people said yes, all gets aggregated together. I won the vote because I voted more times. But there's 101 people who voted, and uh, there's 11,125 bits in the voting pool. So if I divide that by 101, everyone who participated spending one bit now got 110 bits back. So what that did is it took the power of those who have a lot of value and the voice of those who have a lot of value that are exercising it, and it brought their volume down, and it took the power and voice of people who have very little value, and it brought their volume up. But that value and that, that voice is also analogous with purchasing power. That's a very cool mechanism. Yeah. 
essentially what you're talking about is you're, you're enabling DAO-governed social groups. So like the same way I abstracted the currency component, we are essentially abstracting DAOs. And we plan to work backwards. We want everyone to be able to interact and participate with these ideas. And then we can build the infrastructure because they work more seamlessly right now as centralized applications. And like, and I'm, I'm not saying trust me forever. I'm saying don't, don't trust me at all. But all I'm saying is like, we gave a million dollars away in the last year. Uh, so we're clearly in this for the right reasons to our users, right? And so as we build yeah. these and abstract these concepts so everyone can participate, we have the opportunity to then look at the infrastructure suite that's available and bolt on infrastructures that are existing from the open source community uh, or the crypto community or blockchain community and build these infrastructures to demand. Like essentially what we're talking about is harvesting demand to build blockchain infrastructure to that demand. Because stuff that you learn along the way that you can't inform into a thesis because you've never seen the data that's derived from it. Yeah, why invest into that, right? When you are yet to really learn from that. Yeah, and they're like, there are, you know, there's an amazing team of five researchers at MIT that are PhDs and one from Northwestern that are, are just, they're fully dedicated to helping us understand the data economy and what we're designing and understanding, like, they almost liken it to the birth of a star. Like, you know how we have the God particle and CERN collider and they're like, you get to watch this, this event for the first time. They're essentially saying it's analogous to the creation of an economy for us because they're able to actually have a data set showing the birth of a currency from a bartering economy. And it's never, never really been had. So we're working with a bunch of researchers at MIT and a, a bunch of amazing folks have stepped up and that wouldn't have been possible without the team, uh, you know, supporting us from radical change as well. Right now, so essentially, you have a token that exists on a bridged centralized chain itself, and everything else is centralized, I assume, in terms of technology stack. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, we would literally bottleneck any one of the chains right now, I think, with our volume, daily volume. But we do plan, we plan to decentralize the wallet, the identity, the transaction layer. Uh, and the DAO component of our governance structures, both at a geographic level and at a social community level. When you gave the example of the community and the voting mechanism, is that all done through smart contracts? Uh, so right now it's not, but you could execute it through smart contracts, yeah. The way we work is we like we determine whether or not there's any demand at all to kind of have this type of mechanism. And once we've determined that there is, and we've helped people comprehend, because these are new models. The beauty is, is for the first time to create a better democracy or governance structure, you actually have to have an economic incentive for everyone to participate. And if the economic incentive in this particular case is you could actually walk away with more than you put in if someone tries to influence it. And like that walking away with more is purchasing power. But the, the answer there is, I think as we learn about this and these abstracted versions of these, these technologies, we're essentially taking that information, that data, and using it to inform our decision-making about our own infrastructures. So in the current state, because of the, the cycles required to kind of uh, build some of these the contracts and the, the complexity of them, we want to make sure that we learn enough before we go and build them. So they, they exist as centralized tools at the moment, and they will be able to be translated into decentralized contracts later. Are you looking at solutions like Plasma, which are now production-ready, or Channels? Yeah, sure. Like Plasma, you know, you know, Aiden and those folks, Greg and the amazing team at Chainsafe, like we do a lot of work and research and discussions with them around where the technology stack is, if it's sufficiently scalable based on our current volumes today and when it will be. And so we look at not just Ethereum, we look at like a bunch of other infrastructure projects. And we also kind of play with the idea of our own infrastructure projects as we stabilize the actual economy first. I think for us, it's most important that we stabilize the economy and then we can migrate the economy onto the new infrastructure. Because once we do that, we have a profitable model that allows us or the user to compensate the infrastructure and its gas fees or whatever its model of stability is. 
and so without that, I think it's it's meaningless to do that yet. But yeah, I mean, like I it's, I think it's going to be the game changing factor is going to be like who are the applications that actually understand this technology and how to use it from a usability perspective for everyone to participate, and then like where are they going to reside? Because where they place their bets are where the volumes are going to go, and not the not the market making wash trading secondary market volumes. We're talking about like true daily usage volumes, transactions. What are your uh, marketing tactics at this point? Because you have a lot of very active users. Were you advertising on Facebook or just letting the Facebook group know like, hey, this is a new platform? How did you drive adoption? Yeah, we definitely don't. People originally, when we first started this, people were like, close the Facebook groups. And I was like, over my dead body, not going to happen. There's zero chance that we're going to like force anyone to do anything. Our job is to build a better solution, not to tell people what to do. From a growth perspective, like we have this habit of as people to like get super into like crypto, crypto, crypto. If you step away from it for a second, especially as technologists who are excited about this stuff, right? If you step away from it for a moment, you kind of like look at it and you're like, what really matters to people? And what really matters is life's super expensive in urban areas. So they don't have enough money to do the things that they want to do. Like their lifestyles are suffering as a result of the cost of living. Um, so economically, we can make that, we can solve that problem. Socially, people are feeling more isolated and depressed than ever, right? Like in these social networks are actually what's causing a lot of it. So how do we create more meaningful connections at a local level? How do we solve that problem? And then how do we send a message out about solving that problem? And lastly, environmentally, probably again, most important is like, we're, what we're doing is fundamentally not sustainable. And we need to send a message out about that. And so what we typically do is we work with people on different networks and we let them know that like, hey, you know, here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. Uh, here's what we stand for. Uh, ask all the questions you want. And if you feel that it's a good fit for you, we'd love to work with you. And people have said yes. And oftentimes they're compensated just in our own currency. And they're waiting for their own cities to turn on. Does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's an important point because your concept is very easy for an end user, let's say, to understand where it's like, hey, your data is valuable. Here is the compensation for it. And then I can also still use that like it's actually got real world value. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems like the like, like real life vendors kind of anchor the real value of bits for users aside from trading, right? How did you bootstrap that network of vendors, especially in every city? Yeah, so we just literally approached these businesses and we're like, hey, you know what Buns is, you know, we're this community, you know, we're super like funny, we have our own kind of quirkiness to us, you know, a lot of you are part of our community. Uh, we have plans to, you know, drive a lot of volumes and business to your shop. You know, you're gonna have to do a little bit of trusting with us in the beginning and we're gonna prove it, but you'll have full redemption ability with contracts that state that you can redeem them against treasury. Uh, so you're never sitting on something that you can't liquidate. And yeah, we're literally going to build community around your business. And we made good on that. Like when people start hearing that some of the shops are doing $50,000 a month in sales right. in bits, and some of the shops are doing 30%, these are real numbers, 30% of the total transactions are being Yeah, that's astounding. Yeah. It's like when that starts to happen, people are like, uh, sign me up. Because they realize that that is an asymmetric, what you're looking for as a business yeah. person is an asymmetry you can exploit to your benefits to remain in business. And that is a very strategic asymmetry because it's easy for them to accept it. It's easy for people to get it and interact with it. And it literally is cash. So like, mm. I, I think in the more you can offer them the ability to engineer asymmetries with the community, the, the better it is for the business. Yeah. And so what a lot of them, you know, we started off just by kind of partnering with them saying, Hey, you know, before we even had the currency, there were a bunch of shops that came to us and were like, we want to act as a safe trading zone so that if your community wants to trade items, they're welcome in our coffee shop. 
And so we're part of this community. So I think that's how it all kind of started. And we've done a, a pretty good job over the last little while. We've had hiccups and like, you know, the businesses have been understanding with us as we've kind of figured out some of the things that we didn't know how to operationalize yet. But yeah, we've been really fortunate in that, like they've been great partners to us. And same with the brands that we're working with, they've been great partners to us as well. But yeah, I think uh, the way it, it scales is we literally, you know, you create an epicenter with saturation and everything kind of branches out from it. And that's why, you know, to us, these other markets are so key is because we want to be able to send a signal. So the markets we're looking at to scale into are San Francisco, LA, New York, and Tokyo. Let's leave Tokyo off the table for a second and just talk about the other three. Talking about San Francisco is the technology hub of the world. LA is the social hub of the world. And New York is the economic hub of the world. So you send signals by being successful in those three markets and everywhere else will come and follow from that. So uh, the same way Toronto acts as the economic hub of Canada, and we were able to get into Hamilton, Ottawa, Vancouver, Montreal, you know, it, it's a similar theory of signal theory. The businesses that we scale to in other cities, we literally would just show up and explain what we're doing um, and ask if they'd consider, you know, working with us. And because we had a demographic of customers who want to shop from them. And the way we harvested that demand is we would ask the users where they wanted to spend their bits. And they would literally email us lists and we would take those lists and prioritize them based on volumes and then go talk to them. Like, it's just really simple. It's just a lot of hard work. It wasn't ever, like, but we also had some things we had to plug in. Like we knew that like, if everyone wanted electric guitars for some reason, and they only ever sent us like places where you could buy electric guitars, we knew that we had to keep a short value cycle on the currency so that you could realize that it was actually spendable. And because like you walk away the first time and you're like, do I run out with this coffee? Because but like what you don't know is that the business on the other side is getting the exact amount of money they would have otherwise got. But the difference is that it's coming from a different share of customer wallet. So what I was going to say about the other piece. The reason this is so interesting and what's happening and what we're doing is so kind of people are really taking paying attention now is because like we know that migrating the existing systems, like take the technology out of it for a second, migrating the existing system like for like on chain is literally committing us to the same problems of today in a new infrastructure stack. So something fundamentally has to change in the mechanism design, because if we don't, we're literally going to find ourselves at an accelerated rate in the same position, barreling towards economic, environmental, and social destruction. And so the question then is, just how do we ensure that we don't do that? And I think that's why I look really carefully at projects when I interact with them or you know, invest in some of them, even myself, is like, are they changing something fundamental about the social contract as it relates to the planet, money, or people? And if they're not, they're just migrating something like like for like on chain and saying that there's demand for it. And I just, I can't buy it. I don't I have no interest in committing us to like, it's literally committing to the same problems. It's like, it's the definition, I believe, of insanity, right? So I think like, I always look at it that way. And in this particular case, the bone we're picking is around data and who owns that data. The rightful owners of that of data is the people who, who create it. Like we just have been trained out of understanding that. And, and like, it's the beautiful thing because it's almost like using the the social desire for more to get bits to change the behavior of wanting more and more and more. And so you're almost kind of, I always forget, what's the, what's it called? It's the dragon eating its tail. Essentially you're using this motivation for more to get currency and paid for your currency to encourage people to do something better for the planet, better for themselves and better for the economy. 
it's just a really interesting thing. So I, I look for changes in models, like model breaking. And I think it's really important. I think it's actually, I actually personally believe it's irresponsible to migrate existing systems like for like on chain. And I think you raised an interesting point when you mentioned we've been kind of tricked into the way we think about data, because I speak to um, a lot of people about how I like Google and feel that me as an individual person, I don't feel like I have the right to be paid for them to use my data because they use that to better my life for products like Google Maps and stuff. So I use that. And then my cost is the benefit that they provide me. So I very much come from that mentality. But the way you've kind of framed it is definitely making me reconsider. Yeah, like it's often that like, if if all this stuff costs so much, why is it that there's like, I can't remember what the number is in face for Facebook's case, but I think there's like, why is there $44 billion in profits sitting in their bank account? Right? If it all costs so much to build, what you're essentially talking about is what I would describe as feature ubiquity. So, you know, Snapchat proved this really. So Snapchat created this. So I'm going to say one thing and then I'll get into it. We have almost lost in crypto. We almost like gave up or lost the context of all the other lessons of Web 2.0. We have to carry those lessons forward. Don't just ignore them. There's a lot of value in them. And so I think Snapchat taught us a really valuable lesson is that features are ubiquitous and easy to replicate and are not sustainable differentiators. The reason is, is because Snapchat created this amazing ephemeral video messaging thing. Now it's on Facebook, it's on Instagram, it's on WhatsApp, it's on YouTube. So features are not, features are becoming ubiquitous. Like I can literally go to the open source community and grab some sort of awesome chat function that's available. I can go to service providers who are professionals that sell this service and I can just buy it. Uh, or I can build it because it's like it's easier to replicate something once it's been created. So I think features are, are one of these things like this where it's like we're actually now at a place where we can almost look at it things as in the next couple of years we'll likely arrive at feature parity. We're starting to see it happen where everything kind of feels like it all has the same thing. It's like, well, this you can chat on this, you can chat on that, you can chat on this. Like everything has chat, everything has this, everything has that. Agreed. And so I think it's it's actually the substantial differentiator and I've always kind of sit, said it this way, is like the one thing that your competitor can't do is the thing that is your differentiator or is your is sustainable as a differentiator. And in this particular case, the differentiator is the distribution of value derived from profits because these companies are too deeply entrenched into existing economic systems to be able to go off and all of a sudden say, you know what, 60% of the money we make is going back to users. If that happens, then I'd be like, this is amazing because either one or two things happen. They woke up to the fact that what they were doing was not actually helping like they had an opportunity that they were losing to help people or they were pressured into the circumstances because somebody else became so good at that, that they needed to do it. So either one of those scenarios, if that happened, that'd be a miracle, but it's almost like, how can they possibly do that when their entire business is predicated on extracting value? Yeah. And like, imagine all of a sudden, like, you know, think about identity and like, you know, using like de-identified data or like ZK snarks kind of stuff or um, like that's where that fits in there. Like there's so many opportunities to do amazing work with that. It's kind of frustrating because like a big part of what I've been working on is decreasing the lag time of getting R&D projects out the door and being and actually creating value on, on the end user value side of things, right? Engineers and researchers aren't the greatest at going to market and getting dApps to use that to create end user value, right? Because of every inch that you do make with infrastructure, every new possibility, right? Um, you do enable new inches of user value on the application layer side. And it's almost interesting where you mentioned before that, you know, you had the engineers or the researchers at MIT, I believe, right? 
how they were working to see that uh, moment where a broader community would enable a token or a currency to emerge. It'd, it'd be interesting to even see, you know, the greater R&D community rally around decentralized application projects such as funds and other applications that are creating real value today and kind of like looking how we can enable and empower those with the new possibilities that are coming out. Yeah, I think for the, the research teams, it's really interesting because they get to, like, I think the best way to put it is like birth of a star, right? They get the data from the birth. And, but the interesting part is like, even from the non-crypto side, the way I put it is this, is like what the sharing economy did for, to li- create liquidity for your cars and homes, the data economy will do for your information and attention for everyone in the world. And it's funny because soon typically I find from the centralized kind of like traditional web 2.0 startup world. They're like, this story feels analogous to like the sleeping on a blow up mattress in someone's place or getting into a car with someone. It's like, it sounds just as like outrageous as bartering economy. It, it shares some of these same things, but I think like we have the opportunity to do that in a decentralized way. And, and if I have the, if I can continue to have the opportunity to do that, I intend on seeing it through to make sure that this ends up being something that's owned by everybody and not by me. And I think that's where we want to go with this. And we need to start thinking that from a business perspective, doing the right thing is actually going to be better for business going forward rather than doing the thing that's most exploitive and extractive. My hope is that we can prove that. And, you know, if, if I'm, I'm wrong, I can live with that, but at least we tried. So I think, yeah, like, I mean, my words of encouragement to everyone is like, keep working on amazing things, decentralized or centralized, as long as you're doing it for the right reasons. Try and make, you know, change in the world to make things more sustainable environmentally, socially, and economically, because we need more of that. And join Buns because it's awesome. I think that's a great note to end on. So I would just like to thank you very much for coming on. This was a really interesting conversation. Very excited and learned a lot. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks. If you enjoyed what you listened to and are interested in supporting this podcast, then please follow us on Twitter at Wizard of Daps. The show notes will be on our website, and if you want to continue the conversation, join our Telegram group. All links will be in the episode description. Thanks for listening.